So therefore, be proud to be a decent American rather than be just a wanker whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace and hit them hard as part of the game. It's not chess we're playing. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double tap does what the f he wants. Hello everybody and welcome along to chapter 91 of What's the Story Podcast. 91. Chapter I'm, 91. I'm Graham Merrigan. I'm Danny Murray. And this is the award-winning What's the Story Podcast. Coming to you from the award-winning Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel. Check out FitzpatrickCastle.com for more. Merrow. Danny, this week... Yeah. It's a bit mad. Yeah, right, so... You went into a rabbit hole, didn't you? I did, right. For a number of weeks now, I've been down a rabbit hole about bioweapons... And about all sorts of mad crap, right? Essentially, like think of like say the film World War Z, Twelve Monkeys, that kind of thing. Basically, you know, a, a plague or a pathogen or a disease that just comes along, wipes everybody out, most of us out anyway, and kind of the world goes back to like the building blocks, sort of ground zero type shit. Like. Yeah, and uh, it all started because oh, probably back at Christmas, I watched. A, or I rewatched a documentary that was on a number of years ago about smallpox. Well, I say documentary, it was done like a documentary, but it was fake. A, f- a fucking, no, fomentary. F- mockumentary? Mockumentary. Why, why couldn't I think of that? <laughs> a mockumentary um, that basically like gives you the scenario of smallpox, smallpox is deliberately released in New York City and the aftermath of that. And it terrified me then, and it terrified me again when I watched it. Because smallpox is crazy. It's the first ever disease to be eradicated. And our guest this week will tell us about that. Yeah. Um, and we'll get on to that in a minute. But how, do, how do you get smallpox again? It, it's, it's, it spreads through, like, human contact. Yeah. Fright, frightening. Good on, well done. <laughs> uh, what's even more terrifying is blackpox. Which is like smallpox on steroids. Jesus. Terrifying, man. Ter- if you want to scare yourself, just no, Google, Google image it. Don't. But anyway, um, <coughs> so the whole premise of this mockumentary was some lone wolf attacker makes up smallpox in basically a lab, infects himself with it, then goes around New York infecting people, and then he just crawls into a hole to die. And meanwhile... The world starts falling apart because smallpox spreads once. Because people get in the subway in New York, start spread mad like there. Some of them people get in a flight, that's it. It's airborne, it's on, you know what I mean? Mm. On ships, on planes, it goes everywhere. And by the time they've even figured out what the first person has died from, it's spread. It's gone. Good luck, like. And then you have this kind of like, right, we have vaccines, like in storage. Do we have enough? No. Uh oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. <laughs> Alright, it's a little bit far-fetched maybe to say it's going to happen. <laughs> but at the same time, it's very likely it could happen. Yeah. Like, I don't think, or at least Percy speaking, and I don't know, tweet us at WTS pod if you think I'm off me rocker here. But people are going on about, like, you know, World War Three being 
a realistic threat with North Korea, ISIS, America, Russia, all that sort of tension and all that. Man, I genuinely think it's more likely that some fruit loop is just going to create some pathogen and release it. And like kind of infect the city or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, sort of like what's not the Da Vinci Code or Angels of Demon, Inferno. Has it has it nearly happened ever? I don't know, actually. I haven't looked into that. I'm sure I have. I'm sure some Lula has tried to create something and, you know what I mean? But um, our guest this week... Oh, this is a good one. Right, so he's a retired Air Force veteran, Rand, Colonel Randall Larson. And um, How did you find him? I watched Joe Rogan questions, everything. And it was about disease and all that kind of thing. And he was on that. And from that, I just Googled him and started reading about him. So Randall was and, on Joe Rogan? Yeah, uh, he was on the TV show, Joe Rogan Questions Everything. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. I thought that was the name of one of his episodes. No, the podcast. no. Um, but to give you a little bit more of his background, he's the founding director of the WD, WMD, Weapon of Mass Destruction Center, a not-for-profit research organization, which he formed along with um, U.S. Senators Bob Graham and Jim Talent. He's the only national security advisor at the Center for Biosecurity University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He's a senior fellow at the Homeland Security Policy Institute at George Washington University and the author of Our Own Worst Enemy, that book you can get on Amazon. <laughs> um, so as a, he, he works in the Air Force, and in about 1994, Randall took a, uh, like a kind of sabbatical, I guess. Yeah. Um, for we, research. Yeah, for research. He, we had a little chat with him beforehand, um, which uh, due to technical reasons, um, it didn't didn't take properly. So we kind of lost maybe the first five minutes of our interview. So um, it was him talking about kind of himself and, and his background. So I said he's, he's been involved with bioweapons since 1994, across three decades now. Vast wealth of experience. The people he's worked with, are, it's a who's who of bioweapons defense and that kind of thing. Um, and as you'll hear during the interview, he's uh, he's presented to some pretty high up people as well. Like so, big time, incredible. But um, you would ask him a question: Has any one ever tried to like use this as an attack or attack yeah, using yeah. bioweapons and that? And Randy was giving us the the Soviet Union basically during the Cold War were trying to weaponize, and he touched on it later in the interview. But he was saying about they're trying to weaponize anthrax and things like that. And yeah, so the the interview starts with. with um, Randy talking about anthrax, so we'll let him take it away. Now, anthrax is a bacteria. It is not contagious. I couldn't catch it from you if you were sick, but if you sprayed it in a subway system or in a major airport, you could certainly infect a lot of people. And untreated, if you didn't get the proper medical countermeasures, the antibiotics, basically, if you didn't get them, uh, it's 90% fatal. If you are have inhalation anthrax, 90% fatal without treatment, which would mean within 48 hours you need to be taking large quantities of antibiotics. Now, they had a production facility in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and they had another one in Gandahar, Afghanistan. Uh, they had some problems developing it, and it uh, was not ready. Uh, the people at the Central Intelligence Agency that look at weapons of mass destruction, uh, actually the gentleman's name was Rolf Larson, not, no relation to me, but 
he was very convinced that al-Qaeda wanted to have anthrax attacks in U.S. cities at the same time the airplane attacks occurred back in September of 2001. They didn't get them ready. When our soldiers and United Kingdom soldiers and U.S. soldiers deployed to Afghanistan um, in October of and November of 2001, we found that facility where they were producing anthrax or trying to produce it. They just weren't quite finished yet. We know that they wanted to use it, and we suspect they wanted to do it at the same at the same time. So we occasionally have cases like you talked about, the lone wolf, that they'll find people here in the United States that are trying to use uh, to make ricin, which is it's a good weapon to use for uh, to assassinate one person. You make it from castor beans, actually. But it's not something that would work as a weapon of mass destruction. So to the best of my knowledge, the closest anyone has gotten to a serious biological weapon was al-Qaeda. The problem is it's so difficult for our intelligence agencies to find someone who is trying to make a bioweapon. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union had 40,000 scientists and engineers working in 11 time zones in the Soviet Union Wow. making biological weapons that we had very little information about. We did not find out the details till the Cold War ended, and some of their senior people, <laughs> uh, Ken Alibek and Sergei Popov, came to the United States. Did we learn about all of that? So that's the problem. A terrorist organization could have a production facility in a garage or a basement in London or Los Angeles, and there's very little chance that we would discover them beforehand. It's, it's easy to conceal and uh, completely different than making a nuclear weapon or even a chemical weapon. Gaddafi in Libya was trying to produce chemical weapons, but it gives out what we call a large intelligence signature. We know the precursors you have to buy, the chemicals you have to buy to make like a VX or some sort of nasty chemical weapon. And we were able to see that Gaddafi was trying to make chemical weapons, and we were able to take action against that. But very difficult to find a small group of, say, five or six microbiologists working on developing a bioweapon. And that's one of our great concerns here and was the primary concern of the, the WMD Commission here in the United States is very difficult to prevent. So what we're trying to focus on the United States is how would we respond if it does happen? Randy, you mentioned Sergei Popov there, who was who, who uh, as you said, came over from the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and I, I heard him talking before and referencing almost, or at least the image I had in my head was something similar to these kind of trenches of anthrax that the Soviet Union were almost stockpiling this kind of thing. It like you said there, anthrax has a ninety percent kind of chance that you'll die if, if, if you inhale it and all that kind of thing like is anthrax going airborne or I, I know one of the other things that people talk about is you know like permafrost melting with global warming and kind of anthrax and other such things in the permafrost becoming a real threat are they just crazy conspiracy people or is this kind of thing like those trenches of anthrax that, that, that Sergei Popov would have talked about are they actually something that that could be problematic or are they gone well very good question and 
uh, I, I assume you're familiar with a gentleman by the name of Ted Turner, the man who started CNN, the big international news organization. WCW. Yeah. He has a large ranch in Montana, one of our northwestern states here, and he has a large herd of bison, sometimes called buffalo, but they're actually bison. Uh, he had nearly 300 of them die a few years ago because they just ate in a pasture that anthrax spores were in the soil. This naturally occurring. Anthrax is the only bioweapon that really is persistent. Most uh, pathogens, either bacteria or virus, if you spray them in the air as a weapon, within over well, 24 hours, the virus or bacteria would die just because it's out in nature and exposed. The only one that lasts a very long time is anthrax because it's a naturally occurring spore and it forms a hard shell around the bacteria wow. and it can lay dormant in the soil for decades. In fact, the British were testing bioweapons in World War II and they were testing them on an island called Gruenard off the coast of Scotland. It took them 40 years to clean up that island after World War II. Wow. Before you could go, before you could go on that island without a protective mask. 40 years. And so anthrax exists in nature. It's in the United States. Uh, plague. It's caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. We have people die every year in the United States of plague. Uh, Several years ago, uh, the daughter of the superintendent of the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado, she died of plague because she was bitten by a flea carried by a rat. And rats above the 5,000-foot level in the Rocky Mountains here in the western United States, they tend to carry Yersinia pestis. And wow. she got bit by a flea that passed that bacteria to her. She was not properly diagnosed. Those doctors in our hospitals, just like in your hospitals, don't really look for plague or anthrax. It's not something they see. We teach doctors when you hear hoofbeats, you think of horses. But sometimes it's a zebra. And that's what this was. They weren't looking for it. They didn't diagnose her quick enough, and she died. So, once again, Yersinia pestis, which causes plague, exists in nature. All of the pathogens that we worry about, and there's about 30 of them that could be used for biological weapons, all of them, except variola virus, which causes smallpox, all of them exist in nature. We don't think there's any smallpox left because of the successful eradication program that Dr. D.A. Henderson led in the 50s and 70s. We think, we think, there are only samples left in the Russia and here at our CDC, our Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. We think that's been eradicated. But all of the other pathogens, about 30, are available in nature, so a terrorist could obtain those. And the thing that made us safe from terrorists for most of our lives, from terrorists making bioweapons, taking that bacteria. So you got a little bacteria in your Petri dish, but to turn that into a weapon, that used to be very difficult. Now it's commercial, off-the-shelf technology to turn that into three to five micron size and then spray it in the air. And when it's three to five micron size, now human hair is about 80 to 100 micron in width. So three microns is very small. But if you wow. get it down to that size, 
And if you breathe it in, it goes into the smallest sacs in your lungs called the alveoli sacs. And then it goes right into your bloodstream. And at that moment, you have a ticking time bomb in your body. Depending on the pathogen, you'd get sick in two to three days. Or if it were anthrax or plague, it could be that quick. If it were smallpox, that has an incubation period up to two weeks. But it makes no difference. Once it's in your bloodstream, once you breathe it in, you are going to get the disease unless properly treated, which is why in the United States our primary focus these days is on response, which is a, a good thing because being prepared to respond to bioterrorists also makes us better prepared to respond to Mother Nature. I still think that one of our greatest threats in the United States, or any nation, is a pandemic flu. You know, in 1918, 1919, that winter, 50 million people died worldwide. Yeah. 100,000 Americans died of influenza. Most people don't know this. More U.S. Army soldiers died of influenza in 1918 and 1919 than died in all of World War One year. Well, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yes. 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 It, uh, the flu pandemic, and if you talk to some of our top doctors here at our National Institute of Health or our Centers for Disease Control, their primary concern is a pandemic flu. Uh, however, I, myself, being focused on national security, yes, I worry about that, but I also worry greatly about uh, terrorist organizations who now have the capability to produce these type of weapons. And, Randy, like for people who don't have the expertise that, that you would have, as you said, you've been kind of involved in this now since since 94 and, and you've got decades of experience and knowledge behind it you've worked with as you said dr d.a henderson the, the, the man who's responsible for eradicating smallpox so y your knowledge is unquestionable in this but for people like myself and graham who air kind of our knowledge of this would be you know TV, movies, things like World War Z or 12 Monkeys, you know, the, the dramatized Hollywood version of events. Like, are any of those close representations as to what something like one of those pandemics would look like? Well, uh, yes. Hollywood uh, sometimes greatly exaggerates things, and that's the nature of their business. However, uh, there was a movie several years ago, I believe it was 2009, called Contagion. Yes. Uh, had many had many big Hollywood stars in it, and Matt Damon was one of them, and, but many others. And that was a reasonably close, uh, a, you know, dramatization of what it could be like. Now, once again, that was Mother Nature. That was a pandemic flu. But it demonstrated quite well, I thought, about how society can begin to break down. Because now, if it's a contagious disease, whether we're talking about man-made or naturally occurring, but let's just talk about a man-made one, a terrorist organization, if they release something like plague, and here in the United States it was contagious, or Ebola, which the yeah. Soviet Union tried to weaponize, and they did weaponize a close cousin called Marburg, if it's a contagious pathogen, and I'm living here in Austin, Texas, well... The greatest threat to my family may not be the terrorist organization, but it may be my next-door neighbor. And yeah. so that is our great concern 
about the effect it would have on society and how would we respond to that. So that is a great concern. And I think if anyone wants to see a dramatization of what it would be like, I think contagion. In fact, when we were going with the WMD Commission, we held a special screening of that movie, and we had 200 uh, members of Congress and a lot of their staff personnel come to watch it. And the head of our Centers for Disease Control Prevention, Dr. Ali Khan, came and spoke at that event and said, well, there's a little bit of Hollywood in here, but much of what's covered in that movie is very accurate. The one, the one Hollywood kind of piece was, was how quickly they created a vaccine that would help control it. That's one of our problems. It takes us a very long time, and I'm talking a decade, to be able to develop a new effective vaccine, which a is decade. one of the things that we think we need to put very high priority on is how we can learn to more quickly produce a vaccine or a therapeutic. A therapeutic is what you take after you get sick because that process is very slow right now. And we need to improve that process, which, once again, if we improve the process to make vaccines and therapeutics for bioterrorism, it will also greatly benefit our overall public health because we need to find ways to produce these medical countermeasures faster, less expensive, and safer. For a small, rainy little rock in the Atlantic that we are here in Ireland, just a small little island with... Um, not not a lot of defense systems and, and that kind of thing. If something like this was to go, you know, airborne or one of these pathogens broke out on, on a massive scale, would it be, would we be better being a small little island or would we be isolated and worse off, in your opinion? Well, <laughs> that's another good question. Uh, back during the great pandemic, as it's called, in the winter of 1918 and 1919, there were some people in one small town out in Utah, one of our very uh, our very remotely populated or sparsely populated western states, and one of the small towns said, well, we don't want coming to our town, so they really uh, put up a quarantine around their city to keep people out because they didn't want anybody bringing it in. The only problem is they let the the letter carriers, the postal people, come in, and that's how it was brought in, and uh, uh, the town was, was decimated. Other small towns up in Alaska, even more remote, even more sparsely populated, uh, some of the very small villages ended up getting it. So being remote like that, being small, being an island or whatever, well, it doesn't necessarily protect you. Because we have a, you know, a global economy. We just can't shut down borders and not allow anyone in. Our economy would destroy itself. And so, but that is the problem with the contagious pathogen, whether naturally occurring or man-made. So the best thing any nation state can do is to have a strong public health infrastructure, having the, the personnel and the plans, uh, to respond. Like SARS is a good example. I was in Toronto in 2003. And if you remember SARS, it yeah, was a yeah. very deadly 
very deadly disease. And what was most amazing to me when I arrived, there were 25,000 restaurant and hotel workers who had been laid off because no tourists were coming to Toronto. I mean, it's a beautiful city to go visit. That's crazy. Nobody wanted to go there. And so they had to lay off the people. And it was enormously devastating to their economy. Singapore had the same problem. Um, A friend of mine was in one of the finest hotels in the world down there. (laughs) He was one of three guests in the hotel. No one wanted to go to Singapore. So it's more than just the people dying, which is obviously a tragedy, but the economic consequences uh, to a society can also be devastating. Now, we were very lucky in the United States. Uh, we did not get a single case of SARS here. and uh, But we were lucky. Part of it was our public health people uh, worked very closely uh, with our allies and friends and bordering nations, and we were able to keep it out. But uh, a lot of that was luck, frankly. And so that's our great concern. And it's like one of the reasons that Dr. Henderson really thought it was so important that we eradicate smallpox. We hadn't had a case of smallpox uh, for 50 or 60 years in the United States when he started the eradication program in 64. But the issue was we had to continue to vaccinate our people for smallpox because of jet travel. You could be in a remote village in Africa or India and 12 hours later be in the United States or in England or in China, anywhere. And so as our world has become smaller due to jet travel, we have to be worried about some of these diseases. Like when Ebola came to America uh, several years ago, uh, 2014, um, that is a threat to all of us, which is... So I spent 32 years in the military. I used to be the chairman of the military department at our national war college. But I'm a person who believes that public health is as important to national security is our Department of Defense. And not everyone here in the United States really understands that, I don't believe. Yeah. Uh, public health uh, is, is critically important to national security, not in just saving lives, but in saving our economies. Um, Randall, you've, you've mentioned Dr. D.A. Henderson um, a couple of times now. You were fortunate enough to work with him. He, he passed away last year. Um, and as you said, he, he's the man mainly responsible for eradicating smallpox. What, what was it like to work with, with a man who... Like it's the, it's the only um, disease that I kind that that that's been eradicated. I think is it. That's correct. I, you know, I've had great fortune in my life, professional life. Uh, I have known presidents, prime ministers, princes, and potentates. But the most incredible human being I've ever met was Dr. D. A. Henderson. And the fact, for a decade, his office was just three doors down from mine. Uh, I can't tell you how many days he'd just come walk in and sit down in my office and we would just sit and talk about a wide variety of topics, usually focused on public health, sometimes about the smallpox eradication program. But he was also very concerned uh, after he eradicated smallpox or led the effort, the World Health Organization effort to eradicate smallpox. He became the chairman of the school of, uh, or the dean of the School of Public Health there at Johns Hopkins University, one of our finest universities. But then when 9-11 happened, our Secretary of Health and Human Services asked him to come back into government to help us get prepared because there was great concern about the threat of al-Qaeda using bioweapons. And Dr. Henderson came back in and did enormous 
things. One of the other things that you ask about DA, a lot of people know about the smallpox eradication. One less well-known thing that's just as important, after seeing the success in eradicating smallpox, what I think is one of the greatest accomplishments of the human race, I mean, it killed 300 million people in the 20th century. I mean, Freudian. studies that I've seen said... Uh, maybe 100 million people died of warfare, both from direct and indirect causes in the 20th century. Smallpox killed 300 million, three times as much wow. as war. Jeez, when you put it like and, that, some stuff. But when he, after, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Now, and, but after the successful eradication of smallpox, DA said, well, we've learned a lot about public health and how to do things, so let's take on another public health challenge. At that time, in about 1972, only about 10% of the children in the world were being vaccinated for six of the most common childhood diseases. He started a program called EPI, Expanded Program for Immunization. Ten years after that program began, 90% of the children in the world were being vaccinated for those diseases. But the the millions of children's lives that DA's efforts has saved is is just extraordinary. Like I, I, I said, he, he's received so many awards from so many countries, and so deservedly so. And uh, to be able to work with a, a gentleman like that um, is an extraordinary uh, opportunity that I, I will certainly never forget. And uh, the world certainly misses DA. And you, when we had his memorial ceremony um, last fall there at Johns Hopkins University, you just couldn't believe all the people that came. Many of the young people who had been young people working for him in smallpox eradication uh, showed up for that. And uh, like I said, I think it's one of the greatest accomplishments of the human race. You look at the entire history of the human race. We eradicated one of the most terrible diseases we've ever known. You know, it goes back more than 3,000 years. We have found Egyptian mummies with smallpox scars on their faces. We, so we know it was around when the Egyptians were building pyramids. Wow. But but we haven't had a case, and it was declared eradicated in 1980 by the World Health Organization, and what an accomplishment. And, Randy, just uh, going back to kind of <laughs> uh, defense of bio, the threat of bioterrorism and biochemicals and stuff, it, um what are other countries doing? Are, are, are other countries following America's lead in in prevention for this? Well, there's a, a lot of work going on. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems like so many countries would rather spend money on fighter jets and submarines and tanks. And, and look, I, like I said, I, I used to be chairman of the military department. I, I We need those. But they do not put an equal emphasis on our public health infrastructure and developing the technologies and the science we need to rapidly be able to make these medical countermeasures, the the vaccines and the therapeutics we need. So, yes, countries are doing it. And then when we have something like an Ebola outbreak, then there's a lot of emphasis put on it and people spend money. But then after the... Ebola goes away or the stars goes away, uh, then it kind of goes to a backwater again and it's not properly funded. It's difficult to get major pharmaceutical companies involved in biodefense 
because frankly, uh, if you know you were a stockholder in a pharmaceutical company, you would want them doing their research and development on drugs that will, uh, you know, lower blood pressure or lower cholesterol or think drugs that you will take the rest of your life. But to develop a new antibiotic that would be effective against anthrax or plague or some of these other diseases, you know, you may have to take an antibiotic for a couple of weeks, maybe once or twice in your life. There's not a big market for it. So I'm kind of a conservative, small government kind of guy, but certain things like, you know, the military, there was no market that would have created our B-2 bomber. Okay, that was only something that the government would develop stealthy airplanes. And it's kind of that way with certain public health things that we have to do. That is a function that our government needs to do because there's just no market for these sorts of things. And so it's, it's very important. And I consider myself still an educator. I spend a lot of time trying to educate our senior leaders to understand the threat so that we can properly spend uh, the, the our, our sort of this, I see this as defense spending yeah. in defending us against either Mother Nature or biodefense. Too many of our senior leaders in this country um, do not uh, believe that. Well, let me, so I'll give you a very good data point here. Senator, U.S. Senator Richard Burr, who is currently the chairman of our Senate Intelligence Committee, he is a real expert. He really understands the threat of bioterrorism. He told me last year that there are only about five members of the U.S. Congress that understand this threat. Now, we have 535 members of our Congress, okay, 100 senators and 435 representatives. He says there's about five that really understand the threat. That's one of our problems. I suspect the same is true in your country. That would be be zero, I would say, Randy. Sorry, I, I I wonder. Um, I wonder just. Um, is there a, is there a risk that by giving out kind of all this information that we're actually educating would be terrorists? Is that is that a concern? Well, that's a, that's that's no 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 no. That's a very good question. I've been asked that question. One of the most frequent questions I get in twenty five years of uh, doing lectures and presentations. I just did a lecture uh, in January at Stanford University Medical School, one of our better medical schools here in the U.S. Good question, but my response is is to tell your listeners to do a Google search and put in three words, Kuwaiti, Professor, Anthrax. And you will see a video that's on YouTube that it was originally played, I think in 2008, it was on Al Jazeera TV that played worldwide. And since then, there's over 100,000 views of the YouTube video. Kuwaiti Professor Anthrax. And this is a professor at a conference in Kuwait. It's talking about, we don't need to hijack airplanes anymore. Terrorists can just carry some anthrax in a small briefcase across the southern border of the United States take it up to Washington, D.C., and spread it in the air. Okay. So terrorists have been thinking about this for a long time. Only more recently do they now have the technology to actually make it a weapon and make it work. And, and it, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy, 
But I'm going to say it's not really hard either. And it gets easier every day because of that biotechnical revolution. And there's so many things about the biotechnical revolution that are good for my kids and grandkids down here in Texas. But there is that one factor of it that is, is very dangerous and a threat to national security. So I don't worry talking about this because I think it's more important that we educate our public and that, most importantly, we educate our senior leaders so that they understand that the money they spend on public health is just as important as the money that they spend on their defense department or their military. It, it it's almost frightening um, that that this is a a realistic possibility that that you know as you said if it's not mother nature that it, it is a small group um, a splinter cell almost of a terrorist organization that decide this is how they're gonna go about it um like is it something that you think we need to be prepared for or is it something that's going to be you know, this is something to keep an eye on for down the line, or is it a case that you're saying we should have, we we should be ready and and ready to mobilize now in case it happens tomorrow? Well, both, but but I'll tell you what. Here's one of the issues. I don't care how much money Ireland or the United States would go spend in 2017. You wouldn't find yourself a lot better prepared than we are today. This is a long-term effort. It takes years of investment to get what we need. And that's what's most difficult. Because like I say, Ebola happens, SARS happens, all of a sudden governments throw a lot of money at it. And then a couple of years later, they kind of forget about it and move on to something else. This needs to be a long-term project. Now, we have primarily today talked about anthrax and plague and those sorts of weapons that were nation states were making in the 1950s and the 1960s. We haven't even got to what Sergei Popov. I was the first person to debrief Sergei Popov when he came to America. And what he, he was the chief of the Soviet Union's genetic engineering program. He was working on making smallpox and anthrax that would be resistant to our medical countermeasures. Uh, wow. He was working on weaponizing Legionnaire's disease, HIV, he was working on weaponizing neuromuscular disease. and But that took real superpower technology to even attempt that back in the 1970s. There is a new technology I don't know if you've heard about. It's called CRISPR-Cas9. That is changing the world as we know it. What, what there is... was a baby born. Okay, it's a technology that, that makes... We've been doing genetic engineering for a while, but it's very costly, it's very slow, and you have a lot of times it fails. This is a new technology that was developed here in the United States a couple years ago, um, and it's being used in a lot of places around the world. Last year, 2016, in Mexico, a baby was born with three parents. Do you know about that? No, no, I wasn't aware of that. No. <laughs> okay, the the woman who she was married, and they, her, she and her husband wanted to have a child, but from genetic testing, they knew that she carried the gene that there would be about a fifty percent chance that her child would have Hodgkin's disease. This is a very terrible hereditary disease. Yeah. So they took her egg, and they used this technology, and they pulled out that gene that causes. Hodgkins, 
and they took that gene from a, another woman and put it in her egg. And then they did in vitro fertilization with her husband's sperm and then planted the egg back in the woman. And when that baby was born, technically it had three parents because one of the genes, one of the genes came from another woman. So once again, there's a lot of great benefit that's going to come from this. So many hereditary diseases. We in the next decade have the chance to eradicate. But that same technology can be used to make some pretty frightening weapons. Some of those things that Sergei Popov was working on back in the 70s with very limited technology, that technology is readily available today and even more so, and it's not very expensive. And it's not very difficult. When I was out at Stanford University, I was out there last August and then again in January, they're talking about this is undergraduate-level biology work using this technology to do genetic engineering. A lot of great things are going to come from that, but from my perspective in national security, there's a lot of frightening aspects of it because I don't think the United States or any nation I know of is well-prepared for the type of biological attack that we anthrax or plague or whatever. And certainly no one is prepared to respond to a genetically engineered weapon. I don't see that as a big threat today, but within a decade, it's going to be very serious. And what we can't wait until then. We have to start improving our capabilities in public health, in medical science and technology, to get better prepared for this now. Because the national security threat, um, I'm just telling you, I have never, I've studied military history for all of my life. I have never known about an effective weapon that wasn't eventually used. Yeah. And this is the ultimate terrorist weapon. We refer to it as an asymmetric weapon, where kind of the David and Goliath story, you know, the, the little guy can take on the big giant. Yeah. And, and that's what bioweapons provide. A small nation state, like North Korea, or a non-state actor, like Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda or ISIS, Believe me, ISIS has significant amounts of money. They can buy the technology and the people they need to make these weapons. And I believe it's only a matter of time till it happens. The question is, will we be prepared? That, that is frightening. I won't lie. That, that is now, frightening. Let, one, let, me, let me give you one last thing. One last thing that I think is very important, because it's all kind of dark and depressing and everything. <laughs> the, things that nation, yeah, the things that nations really need to focus on to be better prepared, whether we're talking about man-made weapons or Mother Nature. The things we need, we need to be able to rapidly detect and diagnose disease. We need better surge capacities in our hospitals, and we need to be able to make those medical countermeasures faster, safer, and less expensive. Now, those are good for my kids and grandkids, whether we have bioterrorism or not. Because we know Mother Nature is going to keep bringing these newly emerging diseases. And, I mean, you just, you know, Ebola, SARS, you just name it. They're going to keep, we're going to keep seeing those. And so by spending that money on rapid diagnosis and detection, medical countermeasures and surge better surge capacity in our hospitals, we make everyone more secure, more safe, protect our national security and our economies. So... That's the right thing to do. 
it's a good news story. Yeah, and, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, wouldn't that be great for Ireland if you had better surge capacities in your hospital? Absolutely. You had better medical countermeasures that were more effective and and cheaper to make, and we had better. I mean, you know, any disease, rapid diagnosis is one of the best ways to you know cure people. So those yeah. things are all good. That's where we need to invest our money. Yes, we need to buy bombers and submarines and all of that, but we just can't forget the public health part of defense. When when you were briefing um, U.S. presidents, uh, Randy, like, and you're 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 kind of telling them the importance of this, and you know what we need to what what we need to focus on. What does the reaction be like? Well, I will tell you. Uh, nine days after nine eleven, back in two thousand one, I was asked to come up to the White House to uh, with two of my colleagues to do a presentation. Uh, about what it would be like if Al-Qaeda were to attack us with a biological weapon. This is nine days after 9-11, uh, and, and what we could do to prepare. Well, during that presentation, Vice President uh, Cheney said, what does a biological weapon look like? I reached into my briefcase, and I pulled out a test tube, and I said, sir, this is weaponized Bacillus globigii. And by the way, I just carried it into your office. Now, you can imagine what security was like at the White House nine days after 9-11. Yeah. It, it, I, it took me, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes to get through security. Now, I had already retired from the Air Force. I was just running a small think tank there in Washington, D.C. I had no security clearance whatsoever. Uh, you know, I, 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 my name was on the list, the person coming in the White House. I had to show two forms of photo ID. I went through all this screening. The Secret Service agent went through my briefcase, and in one compartment there was an N95 mask, and there was that test tube. And the Secret Service agent pulled out the mask. This N95 mask looks like a surgical mask you'd see in a hospital. And he said, what's this? And I said, well, that's my mask. And he said, why do you have it? And I said, well, I carry it for demonstrations. You've seen Mayor Giuliani up in New York City. You wear it to protect yourself from small particles in the air. The Secret Service agent didn't even ask what that test tube was. Wow. Two weeks later, I walked in. I walked into the headquarters of the Central Intelligence Agency, and I made sure the guard at the front door, who was standing there with a machine gun, they don't normally have open weapons like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they have pistols or whatever. This guy, this guy had a machine gun. It was the first time I'd ever seen what's called a saw, a squad automatic weapon, a thirty caliber machine gun. And, and he had a really nasty look on his face looking at me, and I reached in my suit pocket, and I pulled that test tube out, and I looked at it, and I made sure he and I made eye, eye contact, and then I put it back in my pocket. And he never asked a question. And then we went in, and I was briefing the uh, chief of indications and warning at the Central Intelligence Agency. This was now about three weeks after 9-11. And when we sat down in his conference room, I just rolled my test tube across the table and said, well, I got this into your office. Uh, what, that what test tube was, was not dangerous. It was weaponized. And when I say weaponized, that meant it was three micron size. Remember, we talked about the right size of a particle. Yeah. And it was Bacillus globigii. Genetically, it's nearly identical to Bacillus anthracis, which causes anthrax. This Bacillus globigii is not harmful. But every nation that has made an anthrax weapon first produced Bacillus globigii to test their process. And if you have a leak or something, you don't kill anybody with it. So, I was able to get that into the White House. I was able to get it into CIA headquarters. I've carried it into uh, some very important 
uh, government buildings in London several years after 9-11. I've carried it on airplanes for years. It doesn't look like a weapon of mass destruction, but that's what a 21st century weapon of mass destruction can look like. So what was when you told the administration what that was, what was their reaction? And what, 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 what's the most damage that that test tube of chemicals can do? Well, it certainly got Vice President Cheney's attention and the other people in the room. And like I said before, we started, they authorized, we got all kinds of money to spend on public health and medical countermeasure development. And a lot of good work was done in the few years after 9-11. But then nothing happens. And then once again, we decide we want to spend money, our governments, on other things. In the United States, since 2009, one out of every five of our public health workers have been laid off because people just don't, well, that's that's an easy thing to cut. Yeah. Part of the problem is, you know, we have lobbyists. I'm sure you have them over there. We have lobbyists here. Um, and, you know, the uh, they're up there trying to convince our members of Congress that we got to spend money on the next new bomber, fighter, airplane, aircraft carrier, submarine. Uh, yeah, understand we got to buy some of those. There are no lobbyists that represent a lot of money for public health. That's one of our problems. Um, it's it's not something that sounds real sexy or, you know, and it's not a lot of money, and there aren't a lot mm. of lobbyists up there trying high-paid, you know, wearing their $1,000 suits and making a half million dollars a year to convince members of Congress to fund the things they want. Crazy. That's, a, that's a big problem we have here is trying to figure out how we get the money to do this. Um. Randy, we we could talk to you all night. It's it's incredible the the, the information that you're giving us here. But um, before we we let you go, um, you mentioned to us uh, before we we started to record about um a, a documentary you're working on about um conscientious objectors. Now a lot of people might have heard that term recently in the the Mel Gibson movie Hacksaw Ridge, but um you have one coming out called White Coats, which which deals with over 2,000 conscientious objectors. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, fabulous movie. If you haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, go see it. It's nominated for about six Academy Awards. Uh, fabulous movie. Desmond Doss was the first U.S. conscientious objector to receive the Medal of Honor, our highest our highest award for bravery. Yeah. He was a Seventh-day Adventist uh, conscientious objector. And during the Cold War, we had uh, a bunch of conscientious objectors from that same religion, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, and they they said, well, we're very patriotic. We understand there are threats from the Soviet Union. We want to serve in uniform, but we can't carry a weapon. And so the Army said, well, we we need some human subjects for medical experiments in our biodefense program. These incredible men, I spent the last 15 months traveling around the country interviewing them, these incredible men volunteered to be infected with diseases like tularemia and Q fever and toxins like SED, which just makes you horribly sick. Uh, for, and they would be infected with these, and then we they would learn how to treat them and whatever. This is an incredible story uh, about these men and about their commitment to their religious and patriotic duties, their courage for doing it, and their contributions where that went far beyond biodefense for the U.S. military. 17 of the vaccines that are used around the world today, including yellow fever, and you know there's been outbreaks in Africa and Brazil, that vaccine that's being used right now was the ones that was tested on these white coats back in the 1960s. 
Uh, it's an incredible story. You'll be able to learn more about it uh, on the website, randalllarsonpresents.com. Uh, it's going to be coming out in uh, mid-April. And it's, it's just a wonderful movie about these men that were so dedicated to being conscientious objectors, yet very patriotic and wanting to serve their nation. So I'm very proud to have worked on this project and really looking forward to it coming out. Yeah, we'll absolutely be looking forward to it too. We can't wait to, to see it. As you said, you can learn more about that on randalllarsonpresents.com. Um, Randall, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Um, you've definitely opened our eyes. I hope you've um, given some people a bit of food for thought who are listening at least. Um, but yeah, look, th- thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you tonight. Well, I thank you for helping to educate your listeners out there. And just remember, public health is as important to national security as the military. That's what we got to teach everybody. Absolutely. Colonel Randall Larson, thank you very much. Have a good night. Thank you. Right then. Um, you scared? Yes and no. <laughs> like, like, I mean... I'm yes and no as well. Like, it, it's frightening to think it could happen tomorrow. But it hasn't ha- like there hasn't been any attempts at the moment. Yeah, like because um, like that was as we said, it got for whatever reason just the the, the opening five minutes of the, the the interview just aren't there when we when we listen back to it. But when you think about like as you said, you know, back in the day, superpowers were the only ones who had the technology to to do this kind of thing. But now, you know, anybody with the money and as he said, undergraduate biology degrees, yeah, basically. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, six guys who get disgruntled and a little bit brainwashed could potentially launch something that... But what about Ted Turner's farmland? Yeah. That yeah. was like... What, what bison, was, uh, 300 bison, anthrax. Just died. The, from natural of, forms of anthrax. Because of what they ate, Every yeah. new anthrax grew. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Like crazy, but I have Mental. to say... I'll I'll be looking for um, Hacksaw Ridge actually Hacksaw Ridge is a great film yeah Yeah. I haven't seen it yet but I'd be interested to see his um, uh, Randy's documentary yeah what was it what was the the, that's the documentary White White Coats Uh, White Coats yeah Yeah. so um, as we said and as Randall pointed out if you go on to randalllarsonpresents.com there's a kind of an introductory passage. But what was the word that the that he used? Conscientious objectors. What what does that mean? So a conscientious objector is somebody who um they basically refuse violence. They 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 will not put themselves in a position where they will commit acts of violence. So like for example in in America and this is something in Hacksaw Ridge which is based on a true story by the way and as he said um I can't remember the guy's first name something Doss um but he basically was like, I will not carry a gun. I absolutely refuse to carry a gun into war. I can't. Guns are a weapon of violence. Not happening. Really? But I still want to do my patriotic duty. I still want to serve. I still want to protect. I still. So he became a medic. Didn't carry a gun, though. Oh, very good. And um, it's his story is... I'd never heard of that term before. A conscientious objector, yeah, had you not? Well. I'd heard it before, but like after watching Hacksaw Ridge, it was a lot fresher in my head. Yeah, so. Yeah. When we were talking to Randy and he had said about it, I was kind of like, oh, Hacksaw Ridge. And then when I read the passage as well, then I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. They were from the, the guys that he's over 2,300 um, volunteers. And they were from the same um, church 
I think would be the seventh Seventh Day Adventist Church. I think it is. I can't yeah. remember. So they're kind of like anti-violence or, or whatever. I'm not a hundred percent sure of their belief system, but I think it's something. They don't want to harm people, really. Pretty much, yeah. But so they'll kind of if you're a medic, they'll they'll see to you after you're after harming someone. Exactly, yeah. And that's Hacksaw Ridge. It's a story, and like it's an amazing story. And in fact, it's based in a true story as well. And as uh, Colonel Larson pointed out, he got the Medal of Honor, the highest that can be bestowed. So incredible story. If yeah. you haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, watch that. And then after you've watched that, make sure you check out White Coats when it comes out because that's going to be a very, very good and interesting watch as well. Deadly. That was interesting. I'm I'm happy I went down that rabbit hole and I'm happy I've had an expert reassure me. as Well, you know, reassure me and heighten my awareness. <laughs> well, well, the one of your, your question uh, that wasn't picked up. Yeah. It, it was, was very funny because you were like building up to a big question and yeah. it was a big question, but you were like, so, like, can they affect thousands of people in an urban city like New York City? Yeah. Uh, not really. <laughs> yeah. I had asked, um, the, the, the smallpox mockumentary, documentary thing that I referenced in the intro, I had asked Randall if, if that possibility, if that scenario, a lone wolf going in and doing this was possible, and he was like, eh, not really. <laughs> you know, I don't think it would be a lone wolf. Um, so that's where he kind of said about things going airborne. That's where if somebody's going to do it. They're going to do it in, like, an indoor stadium or, you know, um, like, they're going to release it into the air in a subway so that it gets into your lungs because, I can't remember the sizes, he said, but if it's such and such a size, which is smaller than the width of a, a hair on your right. head, that it gets into, the like, the pockets in your lungs and, and once it's in there, it's a ticking time bomb. Yeah, And once he said system. that phrase to me, ticking time bomb, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so... Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, interesting. Very, very interesting. Going to watch Hacksaw Ridge, and a pleasure to talk to you as well. Yeah, um, RandallLarsonPresents dot com and RandallLarson dot com, lads. If you want to learn more about the guy, fascinating and a gent, and um, really, really enjoyed it. But anyway, where are we? We're in Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel here in the beautiful surrounds of Cloyne. We've just done three in a row, lads. We're wrecked, <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> three tapes. We've just three. finished. Three tapings in a row. We normally only do one a week. Like, that's, you know, that's how we operate. We just do it on the fly. But this week, we're like, let's bank a few and we'll take a little bit of time off and all that. So, anyway. It's before Paddy's. It is. By the time you're listening to all of these, you'll know what I mean by next week's chapter when you listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With all that said. Yeah. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Good night. God bless. Too sweet. Too sweet.